glory nothing in my hands I bring but the promise of acceptance from a good and gracious King to you my burden as you give to me your strength come and fill me with your spirit as I sing to you this praise cause you deserve the greater glory King in need of nothing, empty handed I rejoice. You deserve the greater glory, overcome with joy I sing. By your love I am accepted. Oh, what grace that you would see me as your child and as your friend, safe, secure in you forever. King in need of nothing, empty handed I rejoice. You deserve the greater glory, overcome with joy I sing. By your love I am accepted.
empty-handed I rejoice. You deserve the greater glory. Overcome the I see. By your love I am accepted. You're a good and gracious King. You're a good and gracious King. You're a good and gracious Christ's a sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn in the suffering in the sorrow when my sinking hopes are few I will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. Christ the sure and steady anchor, while the tempest rages on. When temptation claims the battle And it seems the night is won Deeper still then goes the anchor Though I justly stand accused I will hold fast to the anchor It shall never be removed Christ the sure and steady anchor Through the floods of unbelief Hopeless somehow, oh my soul Now lift your eyes to Calvary This my ballast of assurance See His love forever prove all my hope is in the anchor, it shall never be removed. Christ the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, 
We will cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Christ, the sure of our salvation, ever faithful, ever true. We will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. going to be reading Psalms 97 verses 1 through 7. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. at his voice trembles at his voice and how great is our God sing with me how great is our God oh see how great how great is our God and the lamb, the lion and the lamb, 
special time of prayer for uh, Jeremy as he leaves for army boot camp next week. So let's go Lord in prayer for him and for his family as well. Father God, we, we celebrate you this morning that you are, your name is the name above all names. Father, I'm reminded as we, as we sung just a moment ago that you are over all. You are God over all circumstances. You're God over all nations. You're God over all things, great and small. And you're Lord over families. You're Lord over individuals, Father. Lord, so, Father, as we come now, we place our hands upon him and we we ask that your grace would be with him as he departs, Father, for 14 weeks away from his wife and children. That, Lord, your grace and mercy would go before him, that you would strengthen your spirit within him, that, Father, as he's in a different context, as he's, uh, Father, put under different pressures and uh, and engages in different activities that he's He's not used to, Father. 
that, Lord, you would cause his mind and his heart to draw nearer and nearer to you. He would see more and more his great need for Christ, the infinite value that you've given to him and the preciousness of the gospel. He would cling further and stronger to the hope and his anchor in the throne room. And that, Lord, you would cause him as he looks inwardly, Father, to also look outwardly at the men who, uh, the men and women who are around him, Father, that you would grant him opportunities to take the gospel to them. Those that are put under physical pressures, Lord, would it give opportunity to speak of the immense pressure that was put on Christ and the suffering he endured. Not merely to save a country as valuable and honorable as that is, Father, but to do the grander and greater work to bring sinners into the throne room of, of God. Declare them righteous and, and make them right before you. Father, would you give him words to speak in boldness as you did with Paul? Father, would you place a hedge of protection around him physically and spiritually, Lord? Father, he would, he would view any suffering, Father, and even any slandering as your name as gain. And Father, you would strengthen your spirit within him, Father, that at the end of this time, where he would be stronger as a Christian. That the weak places in his life, Father, would bear the brand marks of Jesus. Would display to the outward world more and more of your glory. Father, would you bless Heather as he is away, as Jeremy is away for this time. And Father, you would strengthen her. She would draw near to you each day. Father, she longs for her husband to return. Father, may she find comfort and peace in your presence, knowing that you are good and that you're sovereign over all. Grant her clarity of mind, tenderness, and uh, as well as a strong resolve in heart as she takes care of the little ones. Father, the gospel would be at the forefront of her mind and her heart. And that, Father, though... They are apart. Father, they might have opportunity to converse with each other regularly. We know that this is an opportunity it's provided. Father, may they make the most of it. Father, not only to speak warmly and tenderly and kindly to one another. To be open in their love and affection. But Father, they might share also with one another their love and affection for you. What you are showing them. Father, the struggles they're each going through, the hope that you're providing for them, Lord. May they testify to one another of the reality of the gospel and that this would be the anchor in their marriage. Father, would you bless us as a church? Lord, we would rally around them. Father, we would shore them up and strengthen and support them where there are tangible needs at home, Father, may you make us aware of them. May we meet them. Anything we can do, Father, to be the body of Christ around them, to be community for them. 
And we might reach out to Jeremy. Remind him of the reality of the gospel, Father. For the world will paint a starkly different picture there in the barracks. Father, in the midst of the good thing that these soldiers do to guard and protect liberties and freedoms, we know from the testimony of other faithful believers who've been there that spiritual darkness reigns. So, Father, would we as the church be faithful to reach out as best as we are able to remind Jeremy of the gospel? To remind him of the great hope that he has in Jesus. Father, would they stir him up to be a light in the midst of the darkness where he's going. But Father, in all things, as we each seek to set the gospel before us as central, we see our own frailties and our own weaknesses. Father, we would lean more and more into your provision. And we would ask that you would do what we cannot, Father, which is bring sinners into your throne room. Exalt your name in holiness in our lives and the lives of others. And that, Father, Father, for the shoulders, during this time of separation, this season while they are apart, Father, you would strengthen your spirit within them both and put on display your magnificent glory in their family. Father, in Christ's precious and most holy name, we pray these things. Amen. Stand again, please. Thank you.
and the covenant love of thy crucified son all praise to the spirit whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon and righteousness mine all praise to the spirit whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon and righteousness mine
who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And does Jesus our Messiah hold forever those He loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seals and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. From every people and tribe, every nation and tongue. Has made us kingdom of priests to God to reign with the Son. Is He worthy? Is He worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is He worthy? Is He worthy? Is He worthy of Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of this? Let me see it, please.
We good? We on there? Okay. If you will turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, back in the Gospel of John after a few weeks of being out. Back in the Gospel of John, John chapter 20. Today I want to walk, well, today I'm going to read you 1 John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, because that'll be the text that we're in for two weeks. So, what I'm going to do today, instead of really walking through a lot of the things that seem to surface, in these first 18 chapters, I want to back up just a little bit and spend time on the resurrection itself. Because if you notice, when you read through the Gospels, you have this account where the uh, women or woman, when you put all the Gospels together, you have women that show up uh, at the tomb. And, you know, they find that he's not there and there's somewhat pandemonium and then they run into him or Mary Magdalene runs into him and she thinks he's the gardener. She's crying. And then he says, hey, this is, you know, this is who I am. She says, Rabboni. She says, teacher. Uh, so there's some things that happen there. But if you'll notice, the, the resurrection encounter is kind of just a quick blip that happens in, in the text. Now, there's a lot that's leading up to it, and there's reflecting on it throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. But the actual event itself is just a quick moment as you walk through the, the text of Scripture. So let's read that moment or that encounter from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. I want to do this to give you a context, and next week we'll dive a little bit more into this. But I'll tell you my objective in the direction that we're going today after we read this. And it says this, John writes, Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. First of all, and this is for next week, but notice a moment of unbelief with Mary Magdalene. And this wouldn't be the only one who shares in a moment of unbelief. She doesn't say he's risen, he's alive, he's not there, just like he said he would. She says they've taken him. They've moved him. We don't know where he is. 
And so, verse 3, Peter went out with the other disciples, with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I find that interesting. I don't know why John or the Holy Spirit decided to include that, that one was faster than the other. Maybe Peter was not so much in a hurry to get there because of the shenanigans a little bit, a few days before. I don't, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm trying to discover that to see if there's something there, but that's next week. Okay. So hold on to your seats for that. But I find that interesting. Maybe one was fat and one was not. Maybe one was in shape. And one was not. Maybe one was a runner. I don't know, but either way, here we go. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple out ran, ran Peter and reached the tomb first and stooping to look in. He saw the linen clothes lying there. He did not go in. Then Peter came following him. He went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloth lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Very interesting. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Understand that. They did not understand the scripture yet. So there's a theology that is still working with them. I mean, this is new to them. We've had the benefit of 2,000 years to have the Word of God and to wrestle through these things and have scholars wrestle through these things and present these things at a, at a, at a, at a click of a fingertip for everyone in this room. You can look at treasure, a treasure trove of information more than you would ever have enough time to investigate so that you can learn about the resurrection. They did not have this. They're still operating as fallen, broken men, trying to work through and understand. Jesus taught on these things, but do they fully get it? Do they fully grasp it? But it says right here, as they did not yet understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciple went back to their homes. <laughs> we look in, Jesus is not there. All right, let's go back home. More on that next week. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Mary's processing this information, it seems, a little bit differently than the two disciples. The two disciples look in, they see what's going on or what's not going on, they go home. Mary sits there and she's overwhelmed by this. She's struggling with this. They've taken her Lord. They've taken her Savior. And she's struggling. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know, she did not know that it was Jesus. And so Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. That's another interesting little fact. Do not cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors began uh, being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Again, the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. 
And when he has said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it will be withheld. Now, all of this to be unpacked next week because there's some pretty significant things that are endowed, that are bestowed upon these disciples. I mean, there's breathing the Holy Spirit. There's you have, you can forgive or you can do this. There's some interesting things that I think we need to unpack, but that will come next week. But here's what I want to happen this week. Because the resurrection itself is central to Christianity. You understand that without the resurrection, you don't have gospel. Without gospel, you don't have Christianity. Without the resurrection, you don't have a risen Savior. Without a risen Savior, you have a God who is a liar. There's a lot of problems that result in the idea that there wouldn't be a resurrection. And you better believe that the resurrection or the doctrine of is, has been under scrutiny forever. Forever. And many, many, many of this world do not believe to that. Some that would say, I am a Christian, don't hold to a physical resurrection. Let me just be very, very, very clear, if I can speak for Austin, about the stance of Haven Ridge Church. Okay, and this is unwavering. And that is that we believe in a bodily, physical resurrection, okay, of the God-man Jesus who died and was buried and then rose again. We believe in that. We don't believe it was a hallucinogenic thing. We don't believe that it was uh, a, a spiritual resurrection. We believe that it was flesh. We believe that it was real. We believe that if you, if you try to erase or eradicate the physical resurrection of Jesus, you, A, are not Christian and don't have an understanding of Christianity. Okay, so just to be very, very clear, because you cannot divorce Christianity from the resurrection because it is central to Christianity. Is that clear? Okay, great. So here's my objective today. I want to explore the realities and build an apologetic for the resurrection in hopes that it would bring a steadfast hope and unwavering perseverance and that it would Im implement or implant a boldness within us to become more intentional with the truth of the gospel that we've been given. Because here's the issue. We have struggles and doubts. We have things that we just can't make sense of in our minds. We read the Bible and there's all these things that happen. And sometimes we find ourselves, if we're honest with each other, and thinking, what if? What if this isn't real? What if these things really didn't happen? Maybe it's not often. Maybe it's a fleeting moment that's involuntary. But that's what comes through your brain. There's a moment. Because you wasn't there when things were created, were you? You are not there. You're not an eyewitness to these things. You're taking God's word. But it makes all the difference when you can have a robust apologetic, in other words, a robust defense within you for the reality of the resurrection. And the realities are there that, 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 that are more than just in the Bible. Because you understand if you come up to someone and say, well, I believe the resurrection because the Bible says so. You know, that's not going to go very far with someone that rejects the Bible wholesale. Somebody says, nope, nope, I don't get it. That doesn't diminish the power of the Word of God. Let me be very clear. If nothing else, you say, here's what the Scripture says, and you let the, wa the water of the Word wash over them and pray for transformation. But there is evidence outside of the biblical text if you want to develop or to build an apologetic or to give an offense for the resurrection. I have found that this is... Very, very helpful in moments in my life where the enemy's attacking me. And there are things that I'm like, well, what about this? What about this? 
I can create all these arguments in my mind thinking, well, if God did this, what about this? Ah, I don't understand. But then I go to the resurrection. I'm like, it's irrefutable. They tried to refute it, but it's irrefutable. And if you can come to terms with the resurrection, everything else falls in place. If you can believe that Jesus rose from the dead, if you can believe that, then creation's not a problem for you. A literal six-day creation, if you hold to that, you know, that's not a problem for you. If you can hold to a resurrection, the most monumental moment in redemptive history, which is the central and pivotal moment of redemptive history, if you can cling to that, then everything else is easy. So that's why today I wanted to help, for you, help you to develop an apologetic for the resurrection. So here's my outline for you today. First, I want to provide some popular counter theories of the resurrection. Some of the things that people are saying, some of the antagonists, some of the skeptics who say, no, 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 this is this, this is that. And I want to give you a rebuttal for those. That's just going to help you. That's something to tuck away. That's something to put in your wheelhouse. Today's going to be very informative, but I also feel that it's going to be so very encouraging because you walk here or walk away from here. I feel more equipped because I don't want you to answer this out loud, but if you're honest with yourself and someone came to you and said, give me a defense with regards to the resurrection for the hope that's within you, what would your answer be? Would it be the Bible tells me so? Or would it be something more? Would it be something else? And so I want you to think about that for just a moment. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves and we ask ourselves this question, what is my real defense? What locks me into this? What makes me unwavering when it comes to the resurrection? Sure, you're in Christ and you believe the Bible, but is there anything else that you can argue to present to someone else and say, I hold fast to the resurrection? I'm hoping that today we can walk away with more of that apologetic than what we arrived with. So the second point today is to provide an apologetic for the resurrection. And the third point, which will be fairly brief, is to provide implications of what it would be like both with and without the resurrection, because I think those things are important. So let's work through some of these counter theories that people for years and years have tried to argue or press against Christians to credit a physical bodily resurrection. And I think you'll find this... <laughs> you'll find that people become incredibly creative when it comes to trying to disprove the things of Scripture. And which is very interesting because creativity is an attribute of God. And God has shared that attribute of creativity. And just to show you the potency and the effect of the fall is that people use God-given creativity to try to mastermind or fandangle some way to discredit the resurrection. So people use their creativity against God. And so it shows you the true depravity of man. So here we go, some counter theories. The first theory I want to present to you is called the swoon theory. This is the idea that Jesus never actually died. Now you think about this. You've got two options. You either believe the supernatural or you try to rationalize it and say it's not supernatural. Let's figure out a way that this makes sense. Science, scientists do this all the time. You know, we have the uh, we have evolutionary theory. We have the theory of evolution. We have the theory of relativity. We have all of this in place. Why? As a response to creation, as a response to this truth. And this is what the enemy does. The name of the game for the enemy is to defy truth. This happened at the very first thing in the garden as we're, as we're uh, introduced to the enemy in the garden. He said, did God really say? I've told you this before. 
So this is the name of the game for him. So this is what the enemy is doing. He's trying to discredit all of these things. And one way he does this is through what is known as the swoon theory. When Sarah and I first arrived here, we were a part of a, a part of a church. And this was not the pastor at all, by the way. But we were in a gathering. And in that gathering, there was someone speaking. And that someone speaking started to ring these bells of swoon theory in this evangelical conservative Baptist church. I thought, what is, what is going on here? And so week one went by, and I went home and talked to my wife. I said, did, you, did that person say what, what I thought that person said? And she goes, I think he did. Sorry, my phone's talking to me or whatever. But, yeah, but I, I, I said, okay, well, well, we'll hear next week and see if that's what's being said. So we go next week, and it wasn't just slightly obvious. It was painfully obvious. This person stood up there, and I quote said, most of you believe or most of Christians believe that Jesus really died. And he said, but we know that he really didn't. And I, and I backed up and I thought, huh, excuse me. You know, I, I don't know if I raised my hands there. It was terribly awkward for my wife. I think she was under the chair at this point. I just couldn't hold myself. I'm tapping my foot. I'm like, somebody's getting punched in the face today in Jesus name. You know, I don't know what's about to happen here. And I just said, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? I couldn't hold my tongue, you know? And so I entered into a dialogue, and I wasn't ugly to this person. I was very strong-voiced, you know, because I'm thinking there are young minds in here. This was These were teenagers all around. I'm like, why in the world? And this wasn't the youth pastor, by the way, for those of you that are connecting some dots here at all. No, uh, this was somebody from the outside, an outsider. All right, so I said, what? So I, I challenged, and the youth pastor challenged. I was glad to have a teammate there. And so we pummeled this guy together, and, and he kind of backtracked a little bit. And, and my heart was grieved because I'm like, I, I, this, is, this is blatant heresy, like of the, of, the, of the grossest kind. And so I had a conversation with this individual afterwards and uh, just said, you, you know, he said, ah, I, I, I was just, it was just an attention getter. I said, no, it wasn't. I said, you believe that. You know, and so we had a conversation about that. But that's swoon theory. Swoon theory is the idea that Jesus didn't really die. So here's how that fleshes out. All right, I need to move quickly through this. Swoon theory, Jesus didn't really die. What they believe is because of circulatory shock, because of what Jesus had endured on the cross, because of the blood loss, because of all of these things, that Jesus went into a semi-coma, all right, while he was on the cross. You know, and so because of all these things, the heart rate went so low that they couldn't really detect it. I mean, they didn't have a physician on hand with a stethoscope or whatever trying to determine whether he was still alive or what. They presumed Jesus to be dead. And so they took him off the cross and they buried him. Again, you don't bury people unless you presume them to be dead. But swoon theorists, they will argue that, okay, when Jesus was in the tomb, because of the coolness of the tomb and because of the spices and because of whatever else that was going around was the perfect storm so that he could miraculously come out of that semi-coma and then somehow this man who had been beaten within an inch of his life, who was torn to quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh, this man who had endured circulatory shock, orthostatic hypotension, uh, hypovolemic shock, all of these things that we read about in the medical journals that, that the condemned would have gone through, hematidrosis, all of this stuff from the serious stress that Austin preached about when Jesus was in the garden, and then he's hung on a cross. He wakes up. He rolls this stone away, a man who couldn't even carry his own cross before he endured the cross, and then he walked seven miles to Emmaus so that he could confront the disciples because he didn't really die. 
And I say that's a major, major, major problem. And Christians should reject swoon theory wholesale. Theory number two, the stolen body theory. The disciples wouldn't have had, uh, the disciples would have had to overcome the stone. They would have had to overcome the, the Roman guards. They would have had to overcome the Roman seal. All of these things that kept people away, not to mention it was the Jews, because some want to blame the Jews for the stolen body. The Jews are the ones who insisted that there be guards to cover the tomb so that it couldn't be stolen. So let's, let's mark those out. Pilate, could it have been Pilate? No, absolutely not. It would have put him in a worse position with the Jews than he was already in because he's a man that acquiesced to the push of the Jews to begin with. So let's mark Pilate out. So then you got the disciples. Absolutely not. They would not have had the means to do that. The disciples would not have stolen Jesus' body because they were not yet even firm in their belief of the resurrection, just as I read in John 28 through 9. So it couldn't have been of the, the disciples, not to mention most, most, if not all of the disciples eventually died because of their belief in the resurrection, which is documented. So why in the world would they die for a man that they knew firsthand was a hoax? Why would they go to their death, and most of them in brutal fashion, if they were the ones that robbed the tomb to kind of, uh, to, 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 to kind of set up this hoax, this resurrection? It doesn't make sense. So I consider that to be debunked as a theory. Third theory, or, or uh, um, so this, the next theory, theory number three, the pit theory. So it was common during those times that there was a pit that was dug out, and some who had died, instead of being placed in a tomb, they're just thrown in this pit. You know, funerals do cost money. And so we know that Jesus was put in a wealthy man's tomb. But let's say those who don't have money, those families that don't have money, sometimes they were just thrown into a pit. So there's the argument that Jesus was thrown into, uh, that he was just thrown into this pit. And that's kind of what happened to Jesus. Now, one of the major issues here is that everyone's saying, hey, he's resurrected, he's, he's there, see the tomb's empty, he's resurrected. It would have been very easy for the Roman authorities to go to that pit where Jesus' body was laying, remove him and say, hey, I've got this dead carcass, I've got this dead, rotting flesh of a man right here that you can see is obviously not walking around, right? He's dead. It would have been easy for them to disprove any notion of a resurrection at that point. So the pit theory is a discredited theory. The next theory is the telegram or telepathy theory. And this is that there was no physical resurrection, but that God sent a mental image to the disciples. And people believe this. You understand creativity really has no bounds when it comes to trying to discredit or oppose truth. I mean, this is how the enemy works. He plants these seeds in the minds of people to do whatever he can to move people's heads away from what truth is because he doesn't want them to know truth. So we, get, we, get, we end up with things like the telegram theory or telepathy theory where Jesus, the image of Jesus is given to the disciples, but there was never a physical resurrection, which again, by the way, makes God a deceiver. That's a problem. Next theory, the hallucination theory. And there's a lot of them that I'm not going to read for you. Just know that they get, they get wild, but you need to also know that these things are prevalent. You know, start asking people. That, that, that work next to you or that you, that you share a common interest with or hobbies with or whatever that you don't know those things about. Ask them what they think about the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe they'll say, I believe that the disciples hallucinated because they were so emotional and so distraught over the loss of their teacher. 
that they were so overcome, so undone with emotion that what they ended up experiencing was this hallucination of a risen Christ because that's what they wanted so very badly. Maybe they lost sleep. Maybe they did all of this. It didn't say anything about drugs, but whatever happened, there's an idea that they hallucinated and saw a risen Christ. But again, this doesn't explain the empty tomb. We've already seen that the disciples were firmly rooted that were that they were not firmly rooted in the resurrection belief. Therefore, well, one pastor said this. He said the Christian church, if the hallucination theory is right, is founded on the pathological experiences of certain fanatical people who had abnormal experiences 1900 years ago. And it's amazing too that all 500 because uh, Paul's letter to the church of Corinth 500 witnesses. It's amazing that all 500 witnesses shared in the same hallucination. And these are science, not just scientists or sciences, lightest and brightest, but these are people from all walks of life. And these are the things that they come up with. Next theory, the seance theory. And it pretty much is, as you say, that the disciples had this seance that they that they enlisted the help of a medium who conjured up the dead Christ. And so there was this floating image or spirit that came. Again, it doesn't answer the problem of the empty tomb, and it denies the fact of a bodily resurrection. So we reject that. And it gets wilder and wilder as, as, as time goes by. Theory, the, the, the final theory that I'll explain is, I call it the scandal theory. There really wasn't a name given to it, but this is that Mary Magdalene who is there and she's giving this account of what she had seen. You know, I, she thought he was the gardener, but then he revealed himself to her and she's like, my teacher, Rabboni. And so the idea is that, okay, that's source coming from Mary Magdalene. And we all in the first century that women were third or fourth class citizens. So their testimonies was, was typically rejected, which is, will be interesting in a moment. But one skeptic says she was a scandalous woman because she had seven demons, which was true, and she was a prostitute, which was true. Therefore, they discredit or her, her message is automatically discredited because of her past. You know, so, uh, the scandal theory, but all of these are theories that are upheld by the skeptics around the world that reject a bodily resurrection of Jesus. There's other, the spiritual resurrection theory, the wrong tomb theory. They went to the wrong tomb. He was in the one on the left, not the one on the right. So, well, we just got it wrong. And then there's the evaporation theory by some wild skeptic named G.D. Arnold. But this is how the world operates. This is, this is how the enemy operates. You know, he wants to bring confusion, bring doubt, so that truth is discredited, so that you struggle with it, so that I struggle with it. And he uses men as means, just like God uses men as means, bright, brilliant, credible men in all kind of other walks of life to bring attacks on what truth is. So that's why I think it's important that we build an apologetic for the resurrection. So I want to go through a few of these defenses that I would encourage you to make note of. This is obviously being recorded, or if anyone wants to see these notes, I'll be happy to email them to you so you'll have in written form or typed form. I'm glad to do that. Shanna's trying to keep up, but uh, I don't know if she has enough page to write all this. Um, no worries there, Shanna. So here's an apologetic for the resurrection. So let me go through a few of these things with you. First of all, I want to respond to the accusations that Jesus didn't really die. 
Again, the cross was an instrument of death. It was an instrument of death. If someone goes through the electric chair, they go there, why? Because the judge has passed a verdict or a sentencing of capital punishment, which is to die. If they go to the chair, or if they go to the chamber, or if they go to the gurney, or whatever it is, the job is not done until they are pronounced dead. It's not we get one shot at this. If we don't have the voltage set right, and they just get a little zap in the pants, then they're free to go. No, the verdict or the, the, the sentencing is not electrocution. It's death by electrocution or death by injection lethally or death by, you know, gas chamber or so on and so forth. And this is how it's always been. And the Romans who were so good at what they did, do you really think that they would mistakenly take someone off of the cross because they thought that they were dead, but they're really alive? They put them there to die. So it's highly, highly unlikely and not remotely plausible that Jesus would have been taken off the cross. That He had a spear thrust through his side. Try it sometime and see how long you live. Go through what he went through. Try it sometime and see how well you fare. No one survives the cross. It's not meant for that. And the Romans prided themselves at being so good at what they did. Jewish and Roman contemporary history affirms the death of Christ as well. During the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, understand this, during the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, the 500, the disciples, everybody who eyewitnessed this, during their lifetime, not amongst that group, but during their lifetime, there was no disputation about the resurrection of Jesus. Swoon theory, which I mentioned a moment ago. You know when that came up? 1,600 years after Jesus rose. 1,600 years. So there's a response to the accusation that Jesus didn't really die. Jewish historians like Lucian, Josephus, Tacitus, I don't know how to pronounce that name, they cite his death as factual. And then there's the response of the disciples. The disciples believed that they had seen a risen Jesus. And that's what they believed. Listen, John himself begins his letter in 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. I mean, this is John. This is a disciple. This is an eyewitness who is writing to people. And what he has to say right out of the gate is this. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Jesus. He saw Jesus. He touched Jesus. A resurrected Jesus. And John begins his argument by saying, I'm a witness to these things, not to mention the other 12, not to mention the five or the other 11, and not to mention the 500. The disciples believed they had seen this. The disciples died for their belief in the resurrection. And when you're, if you're ever doubting, if you ever, you've ever got these voices, the voices of the wolves that come into your head and they're like, what about this? What about this? What about this? Did God really do this? 
or you're reading through the Old Testament, if you're trekking through the Bible in a year and you come across some things that are hard for you to understand with regards to the nature of God or what might even seem to be some kind of contradiction, and it causes you to stumble or fall back and say, oh, goodness, I don't know how to make sense of this. So it, it kind of it throws a wet blanket on the situation and you struggle a bit. Go to the resurrection. Look at the life of the disciples. If they stole the body, would they die for something that was a hoax? Why would they go to the lengths that they went through unless they believed in it? I would ask you the same question. If you didn't believe in Jesus, would you let someone behead you if you had the option? If you didn't believe in Jesus, would you let someone tie you to a stake and burn you alive? Or would you start talking? Hey, I don't believe, by the way. I, I don't. I don't. You know, the, the, Paul makes it clear. Nobody hates his own life. Nobody, if you don't believe it, I would, even, I would even be willing to say that there might be many in this room, statistically speaking, not because I know anything of anybody, statistically speaking, there may be some that say, I believe, I believe, I believe, but when the river meets the road, you back off and say, well, maybe I don't, or maybe I'll just say that because I don't want to die. Paul says no one hates his own life. He cherishes it. And there's an aspect of that that is bad. Because when our life takes place over the gospel or the mission, then we have become an idol to ourselves. And we are the center of our universe rather than the gospel. Peter and Paul both martyred in Rome around 66 AD during the persecution of Emperor Nero. Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified. Legend says that Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified as Jesus was. Andrew went to what the Soviet Union Christians there claim him as the first to bring the gospel to their land. He preached in Asia Minor, modern Turkey, and in Greece, where he is said to have been crucified. Thomas tradition has him preaching as the first in the Far East, as as far east as India, where the ancient Christians um, revere him as their founder. They claim that he died there when with a with a when pierced through the uh, when pierced with spears from four different soldiers. Philip possibly had a powerful ministry in Carthage in North Africa and in Asia Minor when he converted the wife of Roman proconsul. In retaliation, the proconsul had Philip arrested and cruelly put to death. Matthew, the tax collector and writer of the gospel, ministered in Persia and Ethiopia. Some of the oldest reports say he was not martyred, while others say that he was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew. He had widespread missionary travels attributed to him by tradition to India with thanks back to Armenia and also to Ethiopia and Southern Arabia. There are various accounts of how he met his death as a martyr for the gospel. James, the Jewish historian, Jephus, uh, sorry, Josephus, reported that he was stoned and then clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot, so the story goes, ministered in Persia and was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace Judas, tradition sends him to Syria with Andrew and to be put to death by burning. And then John, the only one of the apostles generally thought to have died of natural causes. He was the leader of the church in Ephesus area and is, sound, and is said to have taken care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in his home. During uh, Domitian's persecution in the middle 90s, he was exiled to the island of Patmos. There he is credited with writing the last book of the New Testament, the Revelation. And early Latin tradition has him escaping unhurt after being passed into boiling oil at Rome. These are the disciples. Why would these men go to the links? And not just these men, but 
there's a credibility they have as eyewitnesses. But countless people have gone to their deaths. So what did they believe in? What anchored them to the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? There's credo evidence. There's a whole treasure trove, a data, a sea of evidence written orally. All of these things that promote a risen, physically risen Christ. The resurrection preaching can be tracked back immediately after the cross. Some sources say as early as A.D. 31, which, by the way, is before the, the which is b- before Paul was converted. And that's a big deal because if you don't know it, some say that Paul created or invented Christianity. But the resurrection was being taught before Paul even became a Christian. The Apostles' Creed, AD 700, the Latin version says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived in the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty there He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, meaning the universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. AD 700, there's a creed. We are a creedal people or have been. So these things are written. People describe this. They believe in this, not because it was the popular thing to do, but at that time. Josephus wrote these words with regards to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Keep in mind two things. Josephus was not a Christian. He did not have skin in the game for Christianity. Keep in mind that he was a historian. The name of the game for an historian is just to report history as best as they can. Not opinion, just what transpired through the passing of time. This is what he said. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets had reported wonders, and the tribe of Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to that to this day. So he's reporting facts. He's reporting the history of this resurrection Keep in mind that, again, this is a historian and this is a non-Christian. Listen, there's a body of data that's out there to argue for a bodily resurrection. The empty tomb is another one. Most of the theories offered up fall way short because they fail to answer that question. Why is the tomb empty? Why is the tomb empty? You saw an hallucination? Okay, but why is the tomb empty? Oh, Mary's testimony can't be trusted? Fine. Well, why is the tomb empty? You know? You know, but what about all these theories that don't answer that question? What about the change in the way of life of the Jew of the Jews who became followers of Jesus? You understand that too. We looked in the scriptures some time ago where Jesus warns the disciples and says, "This is what's going to happen to you. You're going to receive the brunt of the persecution." The vitriol and the hatred that I've received once I'm gone, it'll be on you now. And he says, "Those religious leaders will do what?" They will kick you out of the synagogue. They will basically strip you of your nationality, and they will do what? They will seek to kill you in the name of their God. Knowing that this could be the reality for those who subscribe to the teachings of Jesus, 
and most importantly to his resurrection. This is what they faced. But keep in mind that these Jews who became Christians changed their way of life. They changed their way of life. And the moment that it all hinged on was the resurrection. They didn't change their way of life because Jesus died, because the promises that he would die and then he would rise. They didn't do that. They didn't do that just on his death. They did it based on his resurrection. In order to disprove the resurrection, you have to have a strong answer for the empty tomb. No scholar or skeptic has successfully done this. The Jews, they practiced baptism and they practiced the Lord's Supper. And what do these things do? They commemorate not only the death, but the life of Jesus. They altered their worship system and structure. That whole paradigm changed. It was brand new. They had these ordinances where they says, hey, this is what baptism is. You're, 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 you're buried with Christ and you're raised to walk with him in newness of life. And they're commemorating a resurrection. So they changed their way of life. And consider the impact, the impact that the resurrection account had on the entire world. Consider the rapid pace at which Christianity infiltrated the entire world. One, time, one scientist notes this. He says, no single event in history of man has ever reached so far across national, ethnic, religious, linguistic, cultural, political, and geographical borders. These aren't mindless, thoughtless half-wits who believe anything they hear. Consider the rate at which Christianity spread around the world. Consider the obstacles that had to be overcome for Christianity to spread. Consider the political barriers, the persecution, the language barriers, the distance barriers, the organized opposition. And keep in mind at the rate at which Christianity spread, and we didn't, they didn't even have planes to fly around and be in South America in three hours. You know, when I think about this, it's very convicting. It's very convicting because it seems like when it came to me, the spread of Christianity slowed down drastically. I have internet and I can anybody I want to just about at any time or get the gospel message out there. I can get a plane ticket and I can go anywhere in the known world as long as I test negative for COVID twice or whatever it is. I can do that and I can say, hey, here's the gospel. I can do that, but it slows down with us sometimes. We don't even have to go overseas. We go to our neighbor because most of the known United States is lost in the trespasses and sins. You don't have to look far and hard. You can be a lazy, lethargic, good-for-nothing Christian and just look anywhere and find the next lost person that you can invest in. So it's very, very simple for us to find somebody. And yet, with all those barriers that we don't have, that the early church had Christianity spread like wildfire. And it would not have if it were not for the resurrection. Think about the nonsensical rebuttals from the skeptics that you've already heard. This is where all these theories come from. Skeptics fail miserably to piece together a counter theory, a counter theory puzzle that is even plausible. In fact, noted expert on the resurrection, Dr. Gary Herbamas, uh, Habermas, explains that skeptics admit the arguments for the resurrection are highly plausible. This is an expert in the resurrection who talks to scholarly skeptics all the time who says, guess what? Your argument is plausible. He says, then why don't you believe? 
And I think that's the question we ask before we move to this final application. Here's the question that we ask is, with so much evidence for the resurrection, why are they still so many that reject the resurrection? Because you hear this, you say, man, that's, that's strong. And those are strong things. We kind of went through them quickly, but those are strong. And you say, well, why are so many people who can hear these things from people who are scholarly and can present them you know, very eloquently? Why are they still rejecting? Understand this. The root level answer is that they are darkened in their understanding. Understand that, that if Jesus is not raised, he is not Lord. This alleviates people from the burden of being count- accountable to a king. It's easier and safer for them to believe he's not resurrected because of the implications that it would bring to bear on their life. It's just easier for them. It's easy to worship a God fashioned in your image. It's easy to worship a king who doesn't hold you accountable, but is there to answer your every whim. It's easy. It's different when you subscribe to a risen Lord who has actual lordship. It makes sense that the enemy would labor to attack the very doctrine that is central to Christianity, the resurrection. So let me read through these as we close and we shift into the Lord's Supper. So here's the implications of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no point in doing anything that we were doing in the name of God. (laughs) We are wasting our time. Matter of fact, the scripture says that. 1 Corinthians 25, starting in verse 12, says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed and raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen to this, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be presenting, we, we are even found to be presenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that, at the, that the dead are not raised. He says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You understand this? If Christ has not been raised, your faith is a waste of time. Do something else. Don't waste your breath. He says, if Jesus hasn't raised, you are still in your sins. Even worse than a waste of time. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If In Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. If there's no resurrection, then we are to be pitied greatly because everything we believe and stand for and the way we live, move, and have our being is rooted in the resurrection, which is the final book into the gospel. Without the resurrection, 2,000 years of history are left begging for an explanation. Without the resurrection, God is a liar because God spoke of the resurrection through the prophets and through others. Job, Isaiah, Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, David says, or let your holy one see corrupted. This text is rejected as a resurrection text by some on the basis of it, meaning that God will not spare, that God will spare David from mortal danger. But that's not at all what happens. There are a little research, and I discovered that the Hebrew word for abandon, along with the preposition that fits with it, refers to leaving someone behind. Therefore, the idea is that David would not be left in the realm of the dead. That's what it means, that he will not leave you to corruption or leave your soul in Sheol, that God will take him from the dead. There's a real resurrection Without the resurrection, humanity has no champion to put sin to death. Without the resurrection, sin and death do reign. But with the resurrection, 
with the resurrection, we are born again and given a living hope in Jesus Christ. That's exactly what it says in 1 Peter 1.3. Because of the resurrection, we can experience the power of the resurrection. Philippians 3.10. Because of the resurrection, i.e. the finished work of Christ, we have not concern over our political climate. Ultimately, the resurrection should, not, should be the source and foundation from which we live, move, and have our being. If Jesus has risen, it means that he is, in fact, Lord. If he is Lord, it means that he does, in fact, rule this world. Because of the resurrection, it doesn't matter who's in power because Jesus has ultimate rule and authority. And because the resurrection is true, it also means that the gospel is indispensable to your life. The gospel is indispensable, meaning that the gospel is absolutely critical and essential to our lives. And it's the gospel that we celebrate when we move into a time of acknowledging the ordinances, specifically the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And let me read to you this. Paul says to the church in Corinth, he says, In the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you came together, or when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is what we want you to do. We're going to have about 30 seconds of silent prayer, and that is just for the purpose that you may be able to examine yourself for a moment, because that's what the text says here in a moment, so that you do not take of the Lord's supper unworthily, but rather you take it with a mind and a heart that is clear, that is sifted through. And so you take a moment to pray and you take a moment to consider where you are and making sure that you taking the Lord's Supper can be taken in a manner that is worthy, lest you heap condemnation on yourself. I don't know how all that works. I just know the scripture says it. And so we believe it. So this is a moment to exercise caution and concern for ourselves and for others. So we're going to take about 30 seconds to pray however you need to pray. And then I'll walk us through it and then we'll, we'll dismiss. Okay, let's pray together.
Father, I pray that in this moment you would bring great spiritual sobriety to our minds and to our hearts. Father, this would not be just something that we've done a thousand times in our Christian life. That it would be, with each time we observe this, a unique moment to itself. A moment where we're in a different place spiritually, hopefully for the better, but maybe for the worse. And we would be able to reflect on those realities and maybe our reflections give way to repentance or maybe they give way to thanks or maybe they, they produce thanksgiving. So, Lord, I pray that the posture of our hearts and our minds as we observe the Lord's Supper might be such that they are worshipful, that they're worthy for you to inhabit as you inhabit the praise of your people through observing the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Lord, we celebrate. We celebrate the resurrection. We celebrate your life. We celebrate even your death. We celebrate the necessity in giving your life as the spotless lamb, becoming sin, even though you knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus, in you, Christ. And so we say thank you. And it is our privilege it is our privilege to to encounter this moment where we can partake and memorialize a great and mighty one-of-a-kind work that is done to revolutionize the life of all who would believe in jesus name amen if you'll open the first layer of your cup and you can remove the cracker We'll follow what the scripture says. Paul writes and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You can go ahead and take up the bread. And if you'll carefully open the juice cup, Paul writes here, he said, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You may take of the cup. And our dismissing prayer is that the people of God would do just that, that we would proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we encourage you to think through what you can do this week to proclaim the Lord's death and his resurrection and to make sure that the gospel is the centerpiece of all you are and all you do. You're dismissed. You have looked into my heart, you know everything about